All right, uh, we are here doing our uh, the second uh, of our podcasts. You'll never get to hear the first podcast interview. It was it was superb. The congressman was great, but uh, we're here with Congressman Will Hurt, uh, uh, who has probably the best background for uh, coming to Congress uh, to deal with national security issues and cybersecurity issues of anybody uh, who's been elected in the last 20 years, 10 years at the CIA almost, uh, uh, and then uh, worked uh, at a uh, cybersecurity uh, company uh, uh, before running for Congress and being elected in 2015. Uh, um, so you're just off of a hearing, uh, uh, I'm sailing right after the hearing, on uh, a digital use of force and uh, what we should be doing to clarify to the people who are attacking us every day that there will be consequences for certain kinds of attacks. What did you take away from the hearing? Well, the, the takeaway is, is this is a topic that we've got to continue to talk about uh -huh. um, and that there is a time and place for this conversation in the public domain and there's a time and place in classified situations and that um, sometimes we get wrapped around the, the term act of war when we're also talking about what is gray area that are things that shouldn't happen. And, and I think one of the best examples that was used was uh, the Ukrainian, the attack on the Ukrainian grid. Um, that is clear in, in, the, in the UN, um, you know, Article 51, um, in, in NATO doctrine, attack on your, your utility grid is considered uh, provocative and something that can respond. And guess what? Nobody responded. And this is an example where um, if you don't have a response, this incentivizes continued negative behavior. Oh, and one of those other examples. Law, you know, real international law is what actually happens right. uh, internationally. And if people attack something and there are no consequences, then the law is slowly moving toward the idea that there shouldn't be any consequences. So uh, we, we are creating law and not in necessarily a good way. No, you're absolutely right, and and look, it's it's also hard to attribute certain things to certain attackers, right? Um, and so is is the issue of general attribution versus specific attribution. I know it was John Smith in the Chinese two PLA, or is it saying that the Chinese government did this? Is that enough? Mm -hmm. um, what is, is are you going to have a digital response? to a digital act of aggression or problem? Could it be a diplomatic response? Could it be an economic response? Could it be a physical response? You know, what are the appropriate level of responses to that? And, you know, everybody um, talks about the agreement that the president made with the Chinese premier a number of months back. And, and, and let's, let's not debate whether it's decreased attacks against intellectual property or not. Um, what if we find a clear violation of this agreement? What will our response be? And these are some of the questions that have that are unanswered. Um, but having you know starting the dialogue is important. And and the, and the reason we had the people that we had was when you look at the national security um, doctrine, there's four levers uh, of of national security uh, use, and that's diplomatic, intelligence, military, and economic. And we need to make sure that we're 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 operating on the same sheet of music music across all four of those disciplines. Yeah, I, I and it would be nice if we had a little bit more imagination. Uh, I've always thought that the right response to the Sony attack would have been to send thousands of balloons over North Korea with little thumb drives with the movie on. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, it, it, they, whatever will make them regret it uh, that isn't likely to start a shooting war is probably what we want to do. Uh, so that's that was just today. Earlier, uh, I guess it was late last week, uh, you also uh, uh, got to question Jim Comey about uh, the email server. You asked some of the best questions, or at least the most focused on the things I'm focused on, which is, uh, was there foreign intrusion into, uh, into her server uh, while she was running it? Uh, um, and the answer was kind of, maybe. And, and here's why the answer was maybe. The level of protection on that unauthorized server in the former Secretary of State's basement was so poor, we're never going to know, right? And, and, and the reality is, a lot of times in sophisticated digital environments, you know that there was attack and you know what was, was exfiltrated because you, because have, you, have, logs. you have logs, you have, you have um, um, widgets mm -hmm. you know, that are, are used and that you, you, can, you can recreate the scene of the crime yep. and figure out what happened. Okay, none of that existed on on Secretary um, Clinton's um, server, and and Director Comey, when I asked how good was the security, he based on that server, he basically laughed and said there really wasn't any. So saying that, you know, um, you know, and I know the former Secretary of State has has come back and said um, Director Comey was speculating. I think speculating was her her exact word. Well, you're never going to find out because there's the, the, the level of sophistication did not exist. It was so poor that you're not going to know. But he was clear that many of the people that um, she interacted with, that their systems had been hacked. Does that mean that there's a possibility that somebody got in and used her as the agent to infect other people's machines? Um, you know, is, is that within the realm of possibility? Yes. Um, whether we have evidence of that, no. Would we ever have evidence? No. But listen, you, this sure is somebody's going to open an email from that. Absolutely. Uh, that email. So, so this is a this is a standard practice. Right? So when I was in the private sector, I worked with a company called Fusion X, and we saw a number of attacks where um, you know the original attacker, you're like, why is did, you know Russian organized crime or the Chinese government attacking that entity? They were doing it because they produce a monthly report mm -hmm. that is opened by very well-known, um, um, rich folks, and you know they put malware on that weekly report that goes out, and so you get the number of clicks get um, go through the roof. Right. So instead of instead of spoofing an email address and maybe getting one percent of people clicking on it, you know you're in the you're in the fifties and the sixties percentage of people that are actually clicking on that on that report. So again, did that happen with Form Secretary of State? We don't know. We don't know. We're never going to know. Uh, but it is, of course, within their own possibility. So here's a here's a question that didn't get asked. Maybe it got asked in other contexts. There was some. There were reports that a the certificate that was used for SSL encryption, which is the most basic, mm -hmm. wasn't actually acquired until she'd gone to China and Indonesia and Japan uh, and then got one in March. Uh, do we know whether it was really unencrypted open communication during the three months before that? I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's, it's a good one um, and to, to, to try to figure out. Yeah. And, and again, I, again, I'm not going to be surprised. And, and here's, here's what's funny to me in all of this is that the defense is saying that she didn't know 
the difference between unclassified and classified information. Mm -hmm. This is a person who went to a top liberal arts university, graduated with honors from Yale Law School, ran a successful legal practice in Arkansas, was the uh, first lady, which is basically like being a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. Then you're a, a senator, and then you're, you're Secretary of State. To say that this person does not know that difference is just shocking to me. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's so unfortunate. And, and again, the reason I get so frustrated about this and upset is because it's not that the individual who did this. It is about allowing a culture that disregards protection of secrets um, to exist in our national security infrastructure. No, it's part, part of the same thing that produces leaks. People get casual about it, say, well, I can, I can leak, everybody leaks. No. Uh, and uh, yeah, you must. this must be particularly frustrating for you because when you were on the pointy end of the spear, uh, you had a lot of secrets to protect and nobody was cutting you a lot of slack. Absolutely, but also my job was to protect the identities mm -hmm. um, of the people that are sharing information with us that's helping with us, with the United States government, with our foreign policy. Right? I, I've been in situations where um, somebody said something they weren't supposed to say, and the next day it had direct impact on the battlefield. And I would not be surprised if a few days after Comey's testimony or, or him um, going out and saying that they're not going to prosecute, that there was some... Um, intelligence officer overseas somewhere with some asset, and the asset looked to their to his or her case officer and said, um, "Are you sharing my information with the Secretary of State? Um, does the Secretary of State know my identity? Because I'm a little concerned." Those are the kinds of issues that I have, and what's been great is that many of my former my colleagues or former colleagues. I'm appreciated, you know, drawing attention to that because it's about protecting people. This is about protecting the secrets um, that allow us um, to do to execute our foreign policy. So, what, given your career, um, what, where did it come in most useful to you now that you're here? I obviously understanding the real impact of classified information, but to, just thinking about the, the kinds of um, things that you learned then that you've used here. Well, having eyes on the back of my head has been incredibly important. <laughs> yes, I guess you know, that's right. <laughs> uh, the difference when I was overseas in, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, I knew what my enemy looked like up here. It's not always the case. Um, <laughs> but but the, the reality is, as a professional intelligence officer, your job was to get to the bottom of something, you know, understand the truth. And usually the way we did it is you ask enough people from different part ways of life, different parts, you know, stations in life, there's going to be an overlap. And where that overlap of all those people you talk to and where, where it's the same, that's usually as close to the truth that you can get. And so being able to do that here, especially on issues of national security, the fact that when you look at what is the number one issue that we're dealing with right now? National security, it's, it's dealing with ISIS. ISIS's ability to inspire people even if they're 6,000 miles away. Um, you know, I, I know I, I've, I've prosecuted this threat. I've, I've fought against this. Um, and so having that background experience um, helps me as a legislator um, to try to figure out what are the tools that we need to give our warfighters in order to, to do their job. So one of the things I'm struck by as I think about using technology in this fight is 
we really as a country in 2002 and 2003 said, let's use every piece of technology that exists today to fight Al-Qaeda. Um, but that was before social media really took off, before Twitter, right? And since then, these new tools have come along, they're being used by ISIS. Uh, I, I'm not sure we've prosecuted with quite the same enthusiasm uh, ways of dealing with those threats. Uh, What's your sense of what, what we should be doing? Sure. And, and I th look, I, I wish when I was chasing Al-Qaeda, the use of social media was as prominent as it is now. Because here's the reality. If you are an American walking in the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan in 2005 and said, hey, I want to join Al-Qaeda, your head was going to get cut off. Right. Now, the fact that I could be in my pajamas and trying to connect with and understand how um, ISIS uses social media to recruit, to inspire, to give direction. You know, their, their use of this tool has actually increased their surface area of attack. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be leveraging that to understand how they're using it for their tactics, techniques, and procedure. That's one piece. But we also have to be countering that ideology that they're leveraging. And when, you know, ISIS has a very sophisticated digital operation. They're, trans, you know, they're doing like four social media campaigns a day. They're translating it into 49 languages and dialects every single day. They're hitting hundreds of thousands of people. They're using iconic imagery from, from video games, from movies, from television, in order to make their message sticky, right? And so the reality is here in the U.S., we have the greatest brands we have the greatest cultural leaders and, and, and leaders in religion and, and art. And why aren't we leveraging them in this fight? And the difference is, is why I'm hopeful. Um, a couple of months ago, I went with Speaker Ryan uh, to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And the presidents, potentates, and kings that we, we met with were talking about how um, this is a civil war within Islam. And that the Islamic world has to work together in order to counter the Islamic radical ideology. Yeah. And, and that we are a participant and a partner in this. That kind of conversation wasn't happening in 2007, 2008, 2009. And so we have to use these tools to get our message up. We have to be engaging you know, all these great technology companies to say, hey, how do we best use your tool in order to get after that, that young man right. who is susceptible to the messaging that, that ISIS and some of these other groups are perpetuating? Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, and finding ways to do that without turning private companies into propaganda machines, because we're going to regret that, uh, right. uh, is, is tricky to do. It, it is, and, and but and here's also the reality. You know, this is this dovetails into the conversation about encryption. Mm -hmm. um, this is this. Look, I, my position on this is very simple. Um, we need to be strengthening encryption. Encryption is good for our national security. Encryption is good for our economy. We should do everything we can do in, to, to strengthen it. And oh, and by the way, our civil liberties are not burdens. They are the things that make our country great, mm -hmm. right? And so, so you know, these companies sometimes they get a bad name. Um, you know, from law enforcement and saying that they're not cooperating, but indeed they are. When they, when there is a a legal document, a, a, a something from a judge saying we're supposed to get this information, they play a role and and they are helpful in that. 
um, without you know um, you know changing how they do things or making them a a extension um, of law enforcement. I, I, that's that's completely fair. I, I'm not sure I put Apple in the category yeah. of responding well to getting uh, orders, but I think that is generally true I, uh, for most of the companies. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the Massey Lofgren Amendment. This is the one that uh, uh, proposed to amend the uh, Defense Authorization Act to forbid uh, NSA from conducting searches of um, data that had already been collected under 702 for Americans uh, without a warrant and would have prohibited any effort to um, uh, weaken the security on any uh, uh, product, uh, even as far as I can tell. If you knew this was going to ISIS and it was going to be used by the commander-in-chief, uh, uh, you could not ask the company to uh, uh, do anything to it to uh, give you uh, access to his communications. My, my memory is you voted against the Massey yes. Amendment, uh, and that it was defeated for the first time after passing a couple of times. What's your sense about what's operating there, and what does that mean for the future? Are we, have we seen the high watermark for, for things like Massey? Uh, listen, I think we are we have a changing level of understanding of the level of cooperation between the private sector and law enforcement when it comes to prosecuting terrorists, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think there's you know after the revelations of Snowden, you know people were were upset and things moved back. Uh, once we really started understanding yep. what these programs are doing, right? You know, um, we well, need to we make were sure. reminded that there really is a threat, and there, there are people want to kill us. Absolutely, and and the reality is, we can protect our civil liberties of American citizens in the United States of America, and we can chase bad guys, and we can protect our digital infrastructure. It's hard, but. We, 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 we can do it. And we need to be making sure that the conversation is about how we do this together to protect our civil liberties and not just saying nothing can be done. So the other thing, I, you held hearings on federal IT purchasing and uh, deployment uh, uh, system, which everybody who's encountered it finds it difficult to believe <laughs> uh, both how much it costs and how uh, poorly it functions. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, ideas about how to make it work better? It, 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 it seems such an intractable problem. Yeah. So the, the difficulty of the problem is because of the scale that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, um, let's just take DOD, one agency within the federal government. It's Fortune One. It is the largest company in the world, right? And so you have massive infrastructure. The, the reality is there's been a number of things that have been, been happening. There's, there's a bill called FITARA that passed a number of years ago that makes sure that all the CIOs have, uh, the chief information officer within the agency has control over their budget, has control over purchasing decision. Because here's what was happening. You'd have a procurement officer buying the IT goods and services, and they're not the person using the IT goods and service. Uh, yeah. You have a CIO that doesn't have complete budget authority. You know, the example I use, Department of Interior has a $1 billion um, IT budget. The CIO for Department of Interior only had like control over like 20, 24% of that budget. Yeah. Can you imagine a scenario in which a subordinate has more uh, uh, purchasing authority than you do? So those are those 
those are those, so so structurally to make sure that um, the person using these services are involved in purchasing it is important. The other thing is is you have to have an incentive for an agency to realize savings, and they have to be able to use that savings at the same time because these projects are so big. You may not be you know you may be able to re, um, achieve the savings, but you can't use it in the same calendar year. So being able to have that roll over, for lack of a better word, is one way that we can streamline this. Um, and, and so everybody who does federal budgets complains about that. They say, I have no incentive to save money uh, this year if you're just going to take it away and won't let me spend what I save next year. Absolutely. Look, two-year two two budgeting, you know, that has a huge uh, – there's, there's a huge support for that up here in Congress. I think that would solve some of these problems. Um, and, and look, the reality is this, and this is why I am hopeful for the future, is that the problem is not a te technological problem, it's a leadership problem. Mm -hmm. And we have to have the right leaders in places. And, and, and over these last 18 months, I've seen um, some good people in the right place, and we gotta make sure that they have the authority to do their job, and Congress needs to play its oversight role and, and making sure you know they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. This has been terrific. I, I, when I close, I always ask the folks I'm interviewing if there is an upcoming event or speech or anything else they'll be doing that they'd like uh, the listeners to pay attention to. You have something coming up? Um, I think you know w with with this being the last week of of, of session before we get into this, the, the 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 summer recess. I'm gonna be all over Texas. We're yes. doing. A, I think I, I'm allowed just, to just, tell you about. Just, this. Just, we're doing just coming to your district. Yeah, you're absolutely. Look, we're, we're calling it. We're calling it DC to DQ. Um, we're hitting as many Dairy Queens as we can in the district. We did it last summer, and now we're going for round two. So if you're in a Dairy Queen in, in South or West Texas, um, you're gonna you may see me. Yeah, all I'll, right. I'll buy you. Great. I'll buy you a dip cone. Terrific. Thank you so much, Congressman Wilhurst. Thank you. Thank you.